Why is the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed your answer to better health and wellness? It's proven quality sleep. Any more questions? Yes, I'm always freezing, and he overheats. It's temperature balancing, so you can sleep better together. But can it help keep us asleep? It senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable. So I'll have more energy for yoga. Yes, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Namaste. Namaste to you, too. And now, save up to $1,000 on the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed and adjustable base, only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Radio Astros, episode 18. Know your name. Spoilers all books. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere in Boston. And I'm Yoke Boy in England. And today we're going to be taking a very close look at Theon Greyjoy's arc from Smiling Ward of Ned Stark to Ruined Plaything of Ramsay Bolton and beyond. That's right. We'll start with the early days in A Game of Thrones before we have Theon's point of view and then move into A Clash of Kings where we gain his point of view and quickly learn what's hiding behind that smile of his. Yeah, and from there his arc takes a decidedly tragic turn and we'll look at his actions in the North, his captivity with Ramsay Bolton and his return to Winterfell in A Dance with Dragons. Theon's identity struggle takes centre stage from A Clash of Kings onwards and we'll have lots to discuss along that theme. Yes, we will. And we'll also look at one of the major identity mysteries from A Dance with Dragons as we consider who is the Hooded Man and speculate what might be in store for Theon in The Winds of Winter. So, spoiler warning there if you want to avoid discussion of the Winds of Winter sample chapter. We also have our usual readings, an advertisement from Westeros, and a song to round out the episode. But before we get started, though, we just want to take a moment to say thank you to everyone who's made a donation through our website. We are really very grateful for the support, and it's made a big difference to us. Yes, it really has. Every donation helps us to cover our overhead, things from hosting fees and website costs to equipment and sound effects. So thanks to everyone for helping us keep things rolling here. And speaking of rolling, it's time to get started. So we hope you'll all stay with us and enjoy our analysis of Theon Greyjoy. Lord Eddard is a second father to me. I do so swear. If it comes to swords, my house owes yours a great debt. So let's begin with some background on Theon and look at what we learn about him in the Game of Thrones. Theon's the youngest son of Balon Greyjoy, Lord Reaper of Pike and Lord of the Iron Isles. He's first seen on page in the first chapter of Game acting as a squire to Lord Eddard Stark and is identified as his ward. He's a lean, dark youth of 19 and we hear more than once that he is amused by life. Yeah, that general air of amusement really seems to characterize him early on. In fact, Bran thinks about him. He smiled a lot, as if the world were a secret joke that only he was clever enough to understand. And in light of where his arc is going, this seems like a really tragic quality. 
But early on, it's remarked upon, and not necessarily in a positive light. Jon Snow dislikes his smirking and calls him an ass. He also thinks that Theon ignores him, so we wonder if there wasn't some rivalry between Ned's bastard and his ward, perhaps for Ned's attention or Rob's friendship. That could be. Rob definitely spends lots of time with Theon, and they seem quite close, especially after John, Ned and Cat all leave. Bran even thinks that Rob seemed to admire Theon and enjoy his company. And by now we know that Theon is not only a ward, but he's actually a hostage, taken by Ned after his father Balon's failed rebellion against Robert nine years previously. Theon himself doesn't seem to bear the Starks any ill will for this circumstance at this point, telling Lady Catelyn, Lord Eddard is a second father to me, I do so swear. And when talk turns to swords and war, he continues, My lady, if it comes to that, my house owes yours a great debt. But we also see Rob being commanding from time to time. And when Theon kills a Night's Watch deserter who has his knife to Bran's throat with a well-placed arrow, Rob's furious about what might have happened if he'd missed or if the man had been armored under his cloak. He says, John always said you were an ass, Greyjoy. I ought to chain you up in the yard and let Bran take a few practice shots at you. So Bran, who has never warmed to Theon himself, observes that his brother is as angry as he's ever seen him. When Rob the Lord continues to berate Theon for the dangerous chance he took with his arrow, we see a change in Theon's demeanour. It says, Theon's smile was gone. He gave a sullen shrug and began to pull his arrows from the ground one by one. Ah, so a little hint that the brotherly relationship between Theon and Rob could become strained and perhaps tinged with resentment when Rob asserted himself as the Lord. Theon can be a bit sullen, it seems, when he's questioned. But just as an aside, it's possible Theon might have had the right of it with that arrow, and as an expert bowman, which Rob apparently was not, he would have known it. We did a little research, and it seems that in the equivalent time period in real life, only the most expensive plate armor would withstand a relatively close-range shot of a broadhead arrow from a longbow, both of which Theon was noted to have there. And add to that, when we get Theon's memory of the scene in his own POV, there is no bitterness and no doubt, just a memory of saving Bran's life. So anyway, here we see that Theon can be sullen and resentful, and when he feels slighted, he doesn't necessarily vocalise, but might actually internalise his feelings, which our armchair psychology tells us isn't necessarily a healthy thing. Right. And by the way, with a character like Theon, with so much in his arc that ultimately comes down to matters of the mind, expect to hear a little bit more armchair psychology today, especially when we get to his point of view chapters. Anyway, when Rob ultimately calls his banners and heads south, hoping to gain his father's release, Theon remains his constant companion and a trusted lieutenant. He works with Brynden Tully's scouts and has a place amongst the 30 who guard Rob during the Battle of Whispering Wood. Cat at one point even suggests to Rob that he had the battle experience to be given some type of command, though she adds, he would not be my choice. Right, but we should not forget that Theon was and remained a hostage for his father's good behaviour. 
One person who did not forget is Ned, who told Kat while she was on her clandestine visit to King's Landing, From this day on, I want a careful watch kept over Theon Greyjoy. If there's a war, we shall have sore need of his father's fleet. So we wonder how much trust and responsibility Ned would have placed in Theon when it came to war. Well, it's made clear in Catelyn's first point of view chapter in A Clash of Kings that she herself doesn't trust him much. Observing him at Rob's side during the audience with Cleos Frey, it says, She studied Theon Greyjoy's sly smile, wondering what it meant. That young man had a way of looking as though he knew some secret jest that only he was privy to. Catelyn had never liked it. Mm. And later in the same chapter, having quarrelled with Rob over the terms he offered Cersei and Joffrey, she learns of Rob's intention to send Theon to Pike to treat with his father. And no doubt recalling Ned's words to her in King's Landing, she tells Rob, I'll say again, I would sooner you sent someone else to Pike and kept Theon close to you. Yeah, and here's a place where we wish Kat had been more firm with Rob and reminded him of his father's orders rather than her own wishes. At any rate, Rob replies by telling her how bravely Theon has fought for the Starks, even referencing the arrow in the wolf's wood that he once found so reckless. Well, it seems pretty clear he wants to convince his mother he's doing the right thing, in spite of her doubts and reminders that Theon as a hostage is of more value to them. Rob's refusal to listen seems almost ironic since their conversation and quarrel began with a discussion of the value of Jamie Lannister as a hostage. Right, but at any rate, Rob stands firm in his desire to send Theon and dismisses his mother and her objections. And we'll see the results of that decision in our next segment, where we look at what happens when Theon gets a point of view and has to confront the question of identity. So we'll be back with Wolf or Kraken after this reading from Theon's first meeting with his father in nearly a decade. It is as I feared. The Greenlands have made you soft, and the Starks have made you theirs. You're wrong. Ned Stark was my jailer, but my blood is still soft and iron. Lord Balon turned away to warm his bony hands over the brazier. Yet the Stark pup sends you to me like a well-trained raven, clutching his little message. There's nothing small about the letter I bear, Theon said, and the offer he makes is one I suggested to him. This wolf king heeds your counsel, does he? The notion seemed to amuse Lord Balon. He heeds me, yes. I've hunted with him, trained with him, shared meat and mead with him, warded his side. I have earned his trust. He looks on me as an older brother. He... No! His father jabbed a finger at his face. Not here. Not in Pike. Not in my hearing. You will not name him brother, this son of the man who put your true brothers to the sword. Or have you forgotten Roderick and Maron, who were your own blood? I forget nothing. Ned Stark had killed neither of his brothers, in truth. Roderick had been slain by Lord Jason Malister at Seaguard, Maron crushed in the collapse of the old South Tower. But Stark would have done for them just as quick had the tide of battle chanced to sweep them together. I remember my brothers very well, Theon insisted. Chiefly, he remembered Roderick's drunken cuffs and Maron's cruel japes and endless lies. I remember when my father was a king, too. 
He took out Rob's letter and thrust it forward. Here, read it, Your Grace. And that was Theon's reunion with his father after ten years among the Starks. So, as soon as we gain Theon's POV, we get the strong sense that what he's been hiding behind his secret smiles and smirks is a little less devotion to the Stark family than he professes outwardly. As he gets closer to the Iron Islands of his birth, his thoughts turn towards his desire to reclaim his ironborn heritage and distinguish himself from the family that he spent half of his life with. Yeah, he sees a Greyjoy banner flying above Pike and thinks, Here at least the direwolf of Stark did not fly above, casting its shadow down upon the Greyjoy kraken. And later thinks how he had been a ward in name, a hostage in truth. And this is followed by the somewhat foreboding thought, Half his days a hostage, but no longer, his life was his own again, and nowhere a Stark to be seen. While in light of the messages he brings his father, he's not yet rejecting Rob outright. At the very least, it appears that he wants to leverage his relationship with Rob into a position of power on the Iron Islands. He takes the daughter of the captain of the ship that's carrying him home as a mistress, and before he leaves, he tells her, Tell your father he should be pleased. As many times as I've fucked you, you're likely with child. It's not every man who has the honour of raising a king's bastard. Hmm, and paired with these hints of trouble, as he sails towards his home, we also get another bit of foreshadowing, paired with tragic irony in this passage. I must remember this, Theon vowed to himself. I must never go far from the sea again. Yeah, and that gives us a hint to what becomes one of Theon's overarching themes remembering his identity, as well as foreshadowing thoughts from both Asher Greyjoy and Theon himself about an Ironborn's place in the world. Later in Clash, Asher tells Theon, Krakens rise from the sea, Theon, or did you forget that during your years among the wolves? Our strength is in our longships. Not long after, in a desperate moment, Theon thinks, I am a Greyjoy of Pike, born to paint a kraken on my shield and sail the Great Salt Sea. So, that theme of identity that George likes to explore is taking centre stage in Theon's arc, as we'll see much more of. At any rate, when Theon arrives on Pike, we quickly learn how little his allies and time spent in the Greenlands will gain him amongst the Ironborn. He's met by his uncle Aaron, a priest of the drowned god known as the Damp Air, who Theon finds much changed from ten years ago. He does, and his uncle wonders how much Theon has changed, asking him, Tell me true, nephew, do you pray to the wolf gods now? Theon replies that he cares nothing for the Stark gods, and so the Damp Air baptizes Theon then and there, And in that one scene, we get an outright rejection of the Starks and the Old Gods, paired with a symbolic reunion with the Drowned God and the islands of his birth. Theon is asserting his ironborn identity in a way that seems increasingly ominous for his relationship with the Starks. Right. And as he rides with his uncle towards his childhood home, he tries to obtain information about his father's plans. 
Theon boldly asserts his status as Balon's heir, but Aaron's remarks about his older sister Asha say plainly that Theon is viewed with suspicion after his time with the Starks. Theon's objection, a woman may inherit only if there is no male heir in the direct line, is met with his uncle's disapproval, and these words, You are a great fool if you believe your lord father will ever hand these holy islands over to a Stark. And Theon's bitterness and sense of being an outsider, his desire to belong and struggle for identity, are made plain to us early on here in Clash, in passages like this one, following his uncle's curt reminder of his status as an outsider amongst his own people. Theon held his tongue, though not without a struggle. So that is the way of it, he thought. As if ten years in Winterfell could make me a Stark. Lord Eddard had raised him among his own children, but Theon had never been one of them. The whole castle, from Lady Stark to the lowliest kitchen scullion, knew he was a hostage to his father's good behaviour and treated him accordingly. Yeah, and the passage continues as Theon thinks to himself, somewhat sullenly, Lord Eddard had tried to play the father from time to time, but to Theon he had always remained the man who'd brought blood and fire to Pike and taken him from his home. As a boy, he had lived in fear of Stark's stern face and great dark sword. His wife was, if anything, even more distant and suspicious. And this couldn't be more different from these words that he spoke in A Game of Thrones to Catelyn. Lord Eddard is a second father to me. My lady, if it comes to swords, my house owes yours a great debt. Mm, So all of this inner turmoil and the sense of shifting identity and loyalties brings us to his interview with Balon. When he arrives at Pike at last, he finds no one that he recognises to welcome him home. He thinks, it is as if I were a stranger here. And he proceeds to prepare himself to meet his father after ten years. Here the Theon we saw in game is in evidence. Full of pride, he dresses himself carefully and richly, thinking to impress his father, acts imperiously to the servants, and expresses his distaste with his accommodations. And when at last he's face to face with Balon, he's immediately put on the defensive when Balon asks what the Starks have returned to him. A man, declares Theon, Balon's blood and heir. But Balon only replies, we shall see, and proceeds to berate Theon for his rich dress and the gold chain he's wearing, for which he did not pay the iron price, that is, taking something from the corpse of a dead enemy. Yeah, it seems Theon has forgotten some of the more grim traditions of his people, which Balon takes as evidence that he has grown soft living among the Starks in the green lands. Balon mocks his son, implying that he is a feminine tool of the Starks. Theon tells him, You're wrong. Ned Stark was my jailer, but my blood is still salt and iron. But Balon doesn't seem to believe his son's words. It becomes clear that he's still angry with Ned and Robert, though both of them are dead, and that he holds a sizable grudge against the living Starks for the deaths of his two elder sons. As we heard in the reading we began with, when Theon refers to Rob as a brother, Balon grows angry and reminds his son of the two brothers he lost in Balon's rebellion. 
Leon doesn't seem to mourn their passing or hold any particular grudges in their deaths, but he's put on warning that he must tread carefully around this father, who is a stranger to him. Well, it seems Balon's looking for actions to convince him where Theon's loyalties lie. When Theon presents Rob's offer of an alliance, which would deliver Lannisport, Casterly Rock and the Crown to the Greyjoys in exchange for their participation in the War of the Five Kings as Rob's allies, Balon is dismissive and burns Rob's letter. He declares his intention to take a crown in the old way by paying the iron price, not by forging alliances and humbly accepting one as a gift. Yes, he does, and Theon at first is shocked by his father's anger and his refusal. But as he listens to Balon's declaration and learns the broad strokes of his father's plan, the reader begins to guess Balon's objective, as Theon does, and the reader might perhaps feel a sense of dread and even a first pang of sympathy for Theon Greyjoy. Because when it says, where, Theon might have asked, but by then he knew. We also know that Theon will shortly be required to decide if he's a wolf or a kraken once and for all. And by his next POV chapter, he seems to have chosen. He's outfitting a new longship has taken on a squire and a war horse, and by all measures appears to be preparing for war. When he meets a young woman who identifies herself as Esgrid, Theon proceeds to attempt to seduce her and convinces her to return to Pike with him, though she has told him she's married and expecting the child of his father's shipwright. Theon goes quite far in his seduction of Esgred, telling her that as Lord Balon's heir, he'll ensure a welcome at Pike for her. Esgred actually questions him on that point, mentioning his brothers, sister, and uncles as potential claimants. And while the brothers are dead, Theon dismisses the sister and uncles, in spite of Esgred's very good points about Victarion and Euron, and what appears to be the very unique nature of the inheritance of the Seastone Chair. Here we get a sense that inheritance has almost as much to do with power as blood, but also that popular choice comes into play as well. Although Theon doesn't realise it, Hesgred is making a compelling case for his sister Asher to be the chosen heir of Lord Balon. And when Hesgred is revealed to be none other than his own sister, Theon's status as an outsider is underlined once more. It is, and again this theme of identity takes center stage with Theon's shifting identity, his failure to recognize his own sister, and the uncertain nature of his position as Balon's heir. In fact, Theon had bragged to Esgred that he would be seated at Balon's right hand at the feast that evening, but when he entered the hall, it was Asha who was seated at Balon's right hand. You're in my place, he said to her, but she replies to him, Brother, you are mistaken. Your place is at Winterfell. Mm, So his own sister challenges his right to belong at Pike and identifies him as an outsider. And their relationship does not get any easier when she tells him, You'd do well to heed what I told you about choosing a crew. Ten years a wolf, and you land here and think to prince about the islands. But you know nothing and no one. Why should men fight and die for you? We make our own laws here, or have you forgotten? 
So, first of all, echoes of Jon Snow there being told by a young woman, you know nothing about the culture he's trying to fit into. But Asha is also making a plain that she agrees with her father that Theon has become a Greenlander and that he has no place on the Iron Islands. And when Balon finally reveals his plans and exactly what actions he's going to be requiring of Theon, his humiliation is complete. Yeah, Balon plans to send Asha with 30 warships to capture Deepwood Mott and Victorion with the bulk of the Iron Fleet to seize Moat Kaelin. Well, Theon is to harry the stony shore with a mere eight ships under the supervision of his uncle Aaron and Dagmar Cleftjaw, no less. So Theon has made his choice to support the Ironborn and abandon his foster family. But it's being made clear at each step of the way that the family of his birth neither trusts nor accepts him. But his sister, at least, seems to understand him, since she calls out his identification with the Starks in Winterfell. When she later tries to convince him to abandon his mad plan to hold Winterfell against the North, she refers to him as the Prince of Winterfell, but attempts to remind him of the ways of his people. In spite of the fact that Theon has recently declared to Maester Lewin, I am Ironborn, I have my own way, he doesn't seem to see the truths she's telling him about where the strengths of the Ironborn lie. No, he doesn't, and we'll be looking more at Theon's actions at Winterfell and what befalls him both physically and psychologically after that in our next segment. To conclude our focus on Asher for the time being, she begs him to leave Winterfell, saying, You are blood of my blood, Theon, whatever else you may be. For the sake of the mother who bore us, return to Deepwood Mott with me. Put Winterfell to the torch and fall back while you still can. But Theon cannot sort out his identity crisis. He rejects Asha, preferring to remain clutching that bit of the North that he's taken for himself to the bitter end, his own need to belong twisted and confused, and his tragic fate all but spelled out by his sister. These two won't see each other again for many long months, and when they do, Theon will be so changed that, in an inversion of their first meeting in A Clash of Kings, Asha will fail to recognise him. Yeah, and the words he'll say to her on that occasion are not only thematically significant to Theon's arc, from Clash through to Dance, they're also the title of today's song. So, before we move on to our next segment, which is called... Pride goeth before the flaying knife. Here's beige lunatics with You Have to Know Your Name. Guest, you know I'll treat you right, he said. But if 
father wages just one more rebellion, then I will cut off your head. There was a boy named Rob, he said he'd be my friend. In return, I told him I'd protect him to the end. Then he sent me back to see my distant father There was a message that he had to send I hatched a plan back into Winterfell I'd speak Some smelly guy, he helped me out He said his name was Base Lunatics, a filk rock act from Michigan. You can find their music on Bandcamp and Soundcloud. And thanks very much to Base Lunatics for letting us feature the great Theon song. Base Lunatics also have a new album due out in autumn of 2015, so be sure to check that one out. Now, as we mentioned, we're going to look at Theon's downward spiral from A Clash of Kings through his earlier Dance with Dragons chapters when the identity crisis that he struggled with early in Clash explodes from dilemma to life-altering catastrophe. Well, to begin with, early on, Theon is arguably ambivalent about his invasion of the North. He thinks about Ned and Rob and his former acquaintance with Benfred Talhart, whom he had put to death, in a way that's clearly tinged with regret. 
At the same time, just before he outlines his plan to take Winterfell by creating a diversion at Torrance Square, he tells his lieutenant, Dagmar Clefchaw, I am no Stark, I am a Greyjoy, and I mean to be my father's heir. Yeah, the point's made over and over again that Theon has something to prove. When thinking about his reaving on the stony shore, it says he did not like the taste of any of this, but what choice did he have? And when Theon tells Dagmar, it's not Torren Square I mean to take, the reader can be sure of his intention since it was broadly foreshadowed in a Bran chapter earlier when Jojen Reed told Bran, I dreamed that the sea was lapping all around Winterfell. I saw black waves crashing against the gates and towers, and then the salt water came flowing over the walls and filled the castle. Drowned men were floating in the yard. In the dark of night, the salt sea will flow over these walls. I saw the dead bloated and drowned. Right, clearly the sea symbolising the ironborn there. Then it's in a brand chapter that we see Theon's occupation of Winterfell. Theon enters Bran's chamber in the middle of the night and tells him, I'm Prince Theon now. We're both princes, Bran. Who would have dreamed it? But I've taken your castle, my prince. I sent four men over the walls with grappling claws and ropes, and they opened a postern gate for the rest of us. My men are dealing with yours even now. I promise you, Winterfell is mine. And Theon's men may have taken Winterfell, but the job of making it his was far from over. Theon promised Bran gentle treatment and fair use of the small folk, and he told the assembled castle, I will be as good a lord to you as Eddard Stark ever was. Betray me, though, and you'll wish you hadn't. So, even though Maester Lewin told Bran, cruel places breed cruel peoples, Bran, remember that as you deal with these iron men. Your lord father did what he could to gentle Theon, but I fear it was too little and too late. It does seem like Theon had better intentions at the start. Yeah, but ultimately, the overwhelming disgust and contempt with which the Northerners greet him, calling him turncloak and betrayer, offended Theon's pride, which caused him to be much more cruel than he had planned. We should remember that besides his words to Bran, he had his own men flogged for raping Pala and seemed to genuinely regret the deaths of Mickin and Septon Chael, among others. But one serious misstep Theon made on the very first night at Winterfell was freeing a prisoner his men found locked in a tower cell. Yeah, Reek had been languishing in the cell since Sir Roderick Cassell brought him back from the Hornwood lands when he went to sort out Ramsay Snow. Sir Roderick wanted him kept to face Rob's justice and perhaps to counter the Bolton's claims to the Hornwood by testifying to the truth of Ramsay's forced marriage to Lady Hornwood. But after the Ironborn seized the castle, Reek was released and immediately swore his sword to Theon. It says, One of the Ironmen handed Reek a sword and he laid it at Theon's feet and swore obedience to House Greyjoy and King Balon. <laughs> so, we find it kind of ironic that Reek, who of course turns out to be none other than Ramsay Snow himself, actually swore his sword in obedience to House Greyjoy. 
and we'll look a little closer at Ramsey Snow shortly. But for now, getting back to Theon, the events that transpire following Theon's first meeting with the people of Winterfell truly illustrate the role Theon's pride played in his eventual downfall. It's the very first Theon POV after Bran's chapter where we see the fall of Winterfell and Theon's speech to the small folk that Theon wakes up to discover that Bran and Rickon have fled along with the Reeds and Hodor and Osher. After assembling the small folk once again, Theon tries to threaten and cajole them into revealing where the runaways have gone. Reek recommends flaying as a way of obtaining information, but Theon assures him, there will be no flaying in the north so long as I rule Winterfell. Yeah, Reek had brought up that Bolton saying that a flayed man has no secrets, an idea that Theon will actually, sadly, soon prove false. But here Theon thinks to himself, I'm your only protection against the likes of him. But he's forced to take a hard line to gain the cooperation of the people of Winterfell. For example, threatening to withdraw his protection of Pala in order to get Farland to agree to use the dogs in the search for the two missing boys. And that search is an illustration of Theon's Shakespearean journey from sadly misguided to tragically foul. He begins with the thought that he hoped he wouldn't have to kill his foster brothers, Though when he considers the possibility of them falling into Asher's hands, he thinks, I'd sooner have them dead. It is better to be seen as cruel than foolish. So there's Theon's injured pride on display, and we see it again later when he begins to realise the group has eluded him. It says, If he crept back into Winterfell empty-handed, He might as well dress in motley henceforth and wear a pointed hat. The whole North would know him for a fool. Right, and when they set out on the hunt, Maester Lewin begged him to show mercy, about which Theon thinks, There is a bloody trap, too much and they call you weak, too little and you're monstrous. But he agreed to consider it, until his wounded pride got the better of him as seen in those quotes. By the end of the chapter, after failing to capture his quarry, and learning of Reek's heinous plan to kill the Miller's boys in Bran and Rickon's place, we get this line. Mercy was for the morning, said Theon. It was better to be feared than laughed at, before they made me angry. And the reader doesn't yet know what Reek's awful plan was, and Theon's next chapter deals with his worsening nightmares, both sleeping and waking we begin to get hints that something is not as it seems with the slaying of Bran and Rickon. In one of Theon's nightmares, he sees all of the dead of Winterfell, from long-dead kings of winter to Eddard and Hullen and the rest killed in King's Landing, and also to Micken and the miller's wife, people he has killed or seen killed himself. There's even a moment that's both foreshadowing of the Red Wedding and a testament to Theon's burden of guilt. When Rob and Grey Wind enter his dream, it says, Man and wolf alike bled from half a hundred savage wounds. Mm, But the metatextual message of the dream, of course, is that Bran and Rickon are not present because they, unlike all the other people he sees, are not dead. And this is confirmed by the end of the chapter when Theon gazes upon the two small heads mounted on spikes outside of Winterfell's gatehouse. 
Through his thoughts, we learn it was the Miller's children he killed and presented as the Stark boys, and we realize the depths of desperation that Theon has fallen into. Yeah, we do. And this was built up, too, with his meeting with Asher and lines like, I am the Prince of Winterfell. This is my seat. No man will drive me from it. No, nor woman either. Besides highlighting his growing desperation, there's more foreshadowing of his future arc, since that title is one that will reappear as a POV chapter title in A Dance with Dragons. In the meantime, he justifies his act to Asher by telling her, They defied me, and it was blood for blood besides, two sons of Eddard Stark to pay for Roderick and Maron. Well, we know from his earlier point of view that Theon didn't even care much for Roderick and Maron, so this is clearly his bravado speaking. His desperation is also shown when he gives Reek a bag of silver and sends him off to round up enough men to help him defend Winterfell from the force Roderick Cassell is raising to retake it. Theon also offers Pala, the kennel master's daughter he had previously protected, as a reward when Reek returns. It says when Reek left, he took with him a bag of stark silver and the last of Theon's hopes. We do wonder about that bag of silver, since an exchange of silver has symbolized betrayal since Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver in the Bible. Certainly, Reek betrayed the last of Theon's hopes. But not before we get the tragic sense that maybe, just maybe, Theon is feeling some regrets for his actions. He thinks how he kept the silver from the wolf's head brooch they had used to identify the elder Miller's boy as Bran, obviously from sentiment. And we get this passage when he's looking at the Winterfell godswood. The red leaves of the weirwood were a blaze of flame among the green. Ned Stark's tree, he thought, and Stark's wood. Stark's castle, Stark's sword, Stark's gods. This is their place, not mine. I am a Greyjoy of Pike, born to paint a kraken on my shield and sail the Great Salt Sea. I should have gone with Asher. Hmm, so Theon's thoughts are consumed with doubt, right up to and following his parley with Sir Roger Cassell. But it's to Sir Roderick that Theon reveals the depths of his resentment towards the Starks. When he says, The noose I wore was not made of hemp and rope. That's true enough, but I felt it all the same. And it chafed Sir Roderick. It chafed me raw. He had never quite realized that until now. But as the words came spilling out, he saw the truth of them. So once again, Theon's torch's sense of not belonging is highlighted. And after that disastrous parley, where Theon threatens to hang little Beth Cassell, and Sir Roderick calls him Craven, Viper, Turncloak and Child Killer, it is Maester Lewin who urges him to surrender and take the black. And it seems Theon was very close to agreeing. It says, A brother of the Night's Watch, it meant no crown, no sons, no wife. But it meant life, and life with honour. Ned Stark's own brother had chosen the watch, and Jon Snow as well. I have black garb plenty. once I tear the krakens off. Even my horse is black. I could rise high in the watch, chief of rangers, 
likely even Lord Commander. Let Asher keep the bloody islands. They're as dreary as she is. If I served the East Watch, I could command my own ship, and there's fine hunting beyond the wall. As for women, what wildling woman wouldn't want a prince in her bed? A slow smile crept across his face. A black cloak can't be turned. I'd be good as any man. But then the Dreadfort men appear, falling upon Roger Cassell's forces from behind and slaughtering them in a short and bloody melee. Fionn opens the gates for what he assumes to be the help he sent Reek to bring. In very short order, however, Reek is revealed to be Ramsay Snow, now calling himself Bolton, and his agenda is revealed to be much less than friendly. The reveal comes when Reek demands his reward. Here's the passage. Theon had given his word. This was not the time to flinch. Pay him his pound of flesh and deal with him later. Harag, he said, go to the kennels and bring Pala out for... Ramsay. There was a smile on his plump lips, but none in those pale eyes. Snow, my wife called me before she ate her fingers, but I say Bolton. His smile curdled. So you'd offer me a kennel girl for my good service. Is that the way of it? So the use of the term pound of flesh is quite interesting there. It's an allusion to Shakespeare's play The Merchant of Venice, where the villainous Shylock demands a pound of flesh in payment for a debt that has gone into default. We see this as another foreshadowing of the fate Ramsay has in store for Theon, who in Ramsay's opinion has not adequately repaid the debt owed for his good service. Yeah, we also wonder if this is meant to be more specific foreshadowing of Theon losing more than a bit of skin to Ramsay. There are some scholars who find castration undertones in the famous pound of flesh scene from Merchant. While we remember a key element of one of Theon's dreams earlier in this book was that of vagina dentata, which refers to a story where a woman's vagina has teeth with the associated implication of castration. Remember when he dreamed of his one-time lover, the miller's wife, as a vengeful mother? Last night in his dream, he had been in bed with her once again, but this time she had teeth above and below, and she tore out his throat, even as she was gnawing off his manhood. So, possibly some strong foreshadowings there of what happens to Theon and his arc, which combined with numerous textual hints to that effect in A Dance with Dragons, we find it's pretty conclusive that he has been castrated, Theon, in the end, and in the words of Ramsay and Theon himself, is, quote, not even a man. It's a really sad fate for someone who had put so much emphasis on pleasure and virility in his young life. Mm, Indeed it is. Anyways, here at the end of A Clash of Kings, Ramsay's revealed to be the terrifying villain we'll come to know. Theon's knocked to the ground, his few remaining ironborn are slaughtered, and Winterfell is put to the torch. The last thing we get from Theon's point of view for a very long time is this. The last thing Theon Greyjoy saw was Smiler, kicking free of the burning stables with his mane ablaze, screaming, rearing. Yeah, that's really quite disturbing, isn't it? And then throughout Storm, we get very few mentions of Theon. Some confirm what we know from that final POV chapter in Clash, 
while others introduce an element of rumour and uncertainty about him. We learn in Cat and John's POVs that Theon has been blamed for the burning of Winterfell, as well as the deaths of Bran and Rickon. But Mira Reed assures Bran that Theon and the Ironborn didn't kill the people of Winterfell. It's in another Cat chapter that we learn that Ramsay has taken Theon back to the Dreadfort and is flaying him. Yeah, Roose actually offers Catelyn a bit of Theon's skin as a token of the revenge she obviously craves. To her credit, such a gift sickens her. When Rob demands his execution, Roose counseled that he be kept alive because of his status as the heir to the now-dead Balon Greyjoy. And in hindsight, we see clearly the value that Theon has to the Boltons. It says... Whoever wins the sea stone chair will want Theon Greyjoy dead, Bolton pointed out. Even in chains, he has a better claim than any of his uncles. Hold him, I say, and demand concessions from the Ironborn as the price of his execution. And then in Feast, his status as heir is discussed briefly by Asher and his uncle Aaron. But there's a great deal of uncertainty as to whether he's still alive or not at that point. The Ironborn King's Moot is an opportunity to mention Theon and perhaps establish doubts about his fate, but not much else. Otherwise, we remain in the dark until early in Dance. His pride had perished here in Winterfell. There was no place for such in the dungeons of the Dreadfort. When you have known the kiss of the flaying knife, a laugh loses all its power to hurt you. Allah loses all its power to hurt you. So, it turns out that Theon himself was as much in the dark as the reader during this time, literally in a dungeon and figuratively in the darkest situation imaginable as a prisoner of Ramsay Bolton. Our first glimpse of Theon in Dance reveals a man changed in the most horrifying manner, utterly stripped of his identity and completely dehumanised. Theon has now become Reek, a creature of Ramses who, in his first reveal to us, is shown in the desperate act of eating a rat alive. Well, it's not clear immediately who Reek is, and the build-up through learning of his condition as a starved, tortured, and maimed prisoner is horrifying. Reek thinks he had not been born with that name. In another life, he had been someone else. But here and now, his name was Reek. He remembered. This theme of identity change and remembering his name will follow Theon for the rest of his arc. And more importantly, we learn that along with his identity, and not a little bit of his skin, all of Theon's pride and bravado have been stripped away. Here's a passage. Reek. My name is Reek. It rhymes with bleak. He had to remember that. Serve and obey, and remember who you are, and no more harm will come to you. He promised. His lordship promised. Even if he had wanted to resist, he did not have the strength. He had been scourged from him, starved from him, flayed from him. 
Well, he's also noted to be missing three fingers and a few toes, and it says his hair had turned white, much of it had fallen out, and what was left was stiff and dry as straw. The dungeons had left him weak as an old woman, and so thin a strong wind could knock him down. Theodas Reek is completely changed physically as well as inwardly. So early in that first point of view chapter, Reek is brought in front of Ramsay and his dinner guests to his obvious terror. Here we learn a little bit about the political situation in the North when Ramsay reveals that he's to be married to Arya Stark, and one of his guests is revealed to be a car Stark by the sigil on his cloak. It seems Ramsay wants something from Reek related to his wedding because Reek is to be freed from the dungeons, although not freed entirely. Yeah, and we see at least a part of what that mission is to be in his next chapter. Reek has been dressed back up as Theon and sent to obtain the surrender of the remaining Ironborn at Moat Kaelin in order for Roos to pass into the north with his force of some 4,000 Northmen, 1,500 Freys and Arya Stark. Although Reek struggles to remember his identity during his mission, when he returns with the 63 surviving Ironborn and one of the Riswells expresses surprise at how so few men were able to hold off a small army, Reek has a moment of pride. We are Ironborn, he thought, with a sudden flash of pride. And for half a heartbeat, he was a prince again, Lord Balon's son, the blood of Pike. Even thinking was dangerous, though. He had to remember his name. Reek. My name is Reek. It rhymes with weak. And we see this struggle continue throughout the three Reek chapters in A Dance with Dragons. A constant internal battle to remember his new identity and new place in life. In some respects, it's very similar to Arya's situation in Bravos. An entirely new identity is supposed to replace the former one, but for both, some small part of their true self keeps asserting itself internally. While Arya's struggle is, at least in some regards, her own choice, Theon's has been severely inflicted upon him by one of the cruelest and darkest characters we encounter in the whole series. Ramsay Snow, or Bolton, is a sadistic torturer with seemingly no redeeming qualities at all, placing him on a level with Gregor Clegane and his men in terms of villains. For just a few minutes now, let's take a brief diversion into the mind and history of Ramsay Bolton. So Ramsay Snow is the bastard son of Roose Bolton and a miller's wife. In A Clash of Kings, Lady Hornwood tells Sir Roderick and Maester Lewin at the Winterfell Harvest Feast that the bastard of Bolton is massing men. She's quite troubled, since in spite of his bastard status, his arrogant response to her inquiries was to tell her that no Bolton would be questioned by a woman. She goes on to give Ramsay's backstory. He lived with his mother until two years passed, when young Domeric died and left Bolton without an heir. That was when he brought his bastard to the Dreadfort. The boy is a sly creature by all accounts, and he has a servant who is almost as cruel as he is. Reek, they call the man. It's said he never bathes. They hunt together, the bastard and this Reek, 
and not for dear. I've heard tales, things I can scarce believe, even of a Bolton. And now that my lord husband and my sweet son have gone to the gods, the bastard looks at my lands hungrily. And very shortly after, we learn in a brand chapter that Ramsay seized Lady Hornwood as she was returning home and married her that very night. When Sir Roderick goes to sort things out, he returns with Reek as his prisoner. Bran hears from the servants that he served the bastard of Bolton and helped him murder Lady Hornwood. Later, Bran hears the full story at supper. The bastard himself was dead. Sir Roderick's men had caught him on Hornwood land, doing something horrible, and shot him down with arrows as he tried to ride away. They came too late for poor Lady Hornwood, though. After their wedding, the bastard had locked her in a tower and neglected to feed her. Bran had heard men saying that when Sir Roderick had smashed down the door, he found her with her mouth all bloody and her fingers chewed off. And later, we get Roos's own words on the matter, though since they're in a letter sent to Rob from the field prior to his taking Harrenhal, we might doubt their sincerity. At any rate, he says that Ramsay's death is a fate he no doubt earned, and he goes on to write, Tainted blood is ever treacherous, and Ramsay's nature was sly, greedy, and cruel. I count myself well rid of him. The true-born sons my young wife has promised me would never have been safe while he lived. And in the meantime, Ramsay fills in the details of his miraculous survival to Theon himself when he returns to Winterfell with the Dreadfort men. Reek is dead, the girl's fault. If she had not run so far, his horse would not have lamed, and we might have been able to flee. I gave him mine when I saw the riders from the ridge. I was done with her by then, and he liked to take his turn with them while they were still warm. I had to pull him off her and shove my clothes into his hands. Calfskin boots and velvet doublet, silver chase sword belt, and even my sable cloak. Ride for the Dreadfort, I told him. Bring all the help you can. Take my horse. He's swifter, and here, wear the ring my father gave me, so they'll know you came from me. He'd learned better than to question me. By the time they put that arrow through his back, I'd smeared myself with the girl's filth and dressed in his rags. They might have hanged me anyway, but it was the only chance I saw. So, another disgusting story about Ramsay there. Ramsay's part in the burning of Winterfell is never relayed to Rob and Catelyn, nor is his return to life satisfactorily explained. What they're told, first by the phrase and then by Roose, is that Ramsay killed the Ironborn and took Theon Greyjoy captive, bringing the women and children of Winterfell to the Dreadfort for safety. A version of the truth, to be sure, but leaving out critical facts. Again, Roos speaks of his son's tainted blood, but defends him by laying the deaths of Roger Cassell and Leobald Talhart at the Ironborn's door. And much later, at Barrowton, through the new Reek's POV, we see a rather stern interaction between Ramsay and Roos, which on the one hand shows the lengths to which Roos has gone to to do damage control for his bastard's actions, 
But on the other hand, brings into question just how much Roos knew about his son's plans in advance. It also confirms that Roos still places some strategic value upon Theon's life, as he indicated earlier to Rob and Cat. In addition, we see that perhaps his earlier words to Rob weren't completely insincere after all, when he says, There are times you make me wonder if you are truly my seed. My forebears were many things, but never fools. All you have, I gave you. You would do well to remember that, bastard. As for this reek, if you have not ruined him beyond redemption, he may yet be of some use to us. Get the keys and remove those chains from him. Before you make me rue the day, I raped your mother. So, very harsh words from Roos there. And when Roos takes Theon away, he actually tells him the story of the first reek and how Ramsay was conceived. It's a horrible tale of rape and murder that ends with the miller's wife demanding that Roos help her support the child he fathered. Roos agrees, since he could see by the baby's eyes that he was a Bolton, and he gives her the mill, the servant reek, and a yearly allowance, but he commands her to never tell the boy who his father is. But she disobeyed him in that, and Ramsay grew up nursing a grudge against his true-born brother, Domeric. When Domeric was grown, he made the mistake of seeking out his bastard brother, and Roos tells Theon, Ramsay killed him. A sickness of the bowels, Maester Uthor says, but I say poison. So, overall, a picture emerges of a sadistic and power-hungry young man, with rage and resentment seething at his surface. We'll learn that he hates being called Snow, since it reminds him of his bastardy. He is very cunning, and also quite strong, but absolutely devoid of any emotion other than rage and pride. And while his devotion to the flaying knives of his father's house may have been instrumental in breaking Theon's pride, we wonder if this won't also be the key to his own downfall. Yeah, we do. And we find it interesting that in place of Brandon Rickon, Ramsay killed the children of a miller's wife, which is his own former identity, child of a miller's wife. And for all that the Northmen hate Theon Greyjoy, there are survivors of the sack of Winterfell with Stannis who know Ramsay's role there, and still others from the Hornwood and the surrounding lands who have not forgotten his murder of Lady Donella and his use of dogs to hunt women. When the truth of his sadism becomes widely known, and we expect it will since those who know of it are moving closer together all the time, we expect that there's some very poetic justice in store for Ramsay Bolton. Yeah, and the most poetic thing that we can think of is if Ramsay's eventually eaten by his own dogs, and it hasn't escaped us that when Arya is at the House of Black and White, she learns about the use of basilisk's blood. It says, This paste is spiced with basilisk blood. It will give cooked flesh a savoury smell, but if eaten, it produces violent madness in beasts as well as men. A mouse will attack a lion after a taste of basilisk blood. Aya chewed her lip. Would it work on dogs? 
Hmm, well, Arya has seen this in action at Harrenhal when she gave Jacken Reese's name and his own dog mysteriously attacked and killed him. But imagine Ramsay's girls being fed basilisk blood, possibly by Arya, who knows its power and has access to it, and turning on him in a similar fashion. That might be the most poetic ending ever. Yes, it would. So fingers crossed for Arya killing Ramsay Bolton with this basilisk blood and his own dogs. And getting back to Theon now, Roos brings Reek to an audience with Lady Barbary Dustin. Roos tells him that he owes him much and more. The Starks were done and doomed the night that you took Winterfell. All this is only squabbling over spoils. So it becomes clear that Reek is going to be expected to play a role in the Bolton's plans to settle the squabbling when he is introduced to Lady Dustin as the rightful lord of the Iron Islands, Theon of House Greyjoy. But Reek's physical and mental torment at Ramsay's hands has left him unable to hear that name and unable to recognize himself in it. He has fully assumed the identity of Ramsay's servant, and he breaks down, denying his former identity. Here's the passage. Reek could hear no more. Please, my lord, my lady, there's been some mistake. He fell to his knees, trembling like a leaf in a winter storm, tears streaming down his ravaged cheeks. I'm not him. I'm not the turncloak. He died at Winterfell. My name is Reek. He had to remember his name. It rhymes with freak. So, from this moment of utter distress and rejection of his true self, we're set up for Reek's return to Winterfell and the remarkable second transformation that occurs there, as he progresses from Reek back to Theon. But first, it's time for a reading. It's a scene filled with despair and pathos. Here's Theon praying in the Winterfell Godswood. Snow was falling on the godswood, too, melting when it touched the ground. Beneath the white-cloaked trees, the earth had turned to mud. Tendrils of mist hung in the air like ghostly ribbons. Why did I come here? These are not my gods. This is not my place. The heart tree stood before him, a pale giant with a carved face and leaves like bloody hands. A thin film of ice covered the surface of the pool beneath the weirwood. Theon sank to his knees beside it. Please, he murmured through his broken teeth. I never meant... The words caught in his throat. Save me, he finally managed. Give me... What? Strength? Courage? Mercy? Snow fell around him, pale and silent, keeping its own counsel. The only sound was a faint sobbing. Jane, he thought. It is her, sobbing in her bridal bed. Who else could it be? Gods do not weep. Or do they? The sound was too painful to endure. Theon grabbed hold of a branch and pulled himself back to his feet, knocked the snow off his legs, and limped back toward the lights. There are ghosts in Winterfell, he thought, and I am one of them.
And that was Theon in the Winterfell Godswood, a scene that captures the despair that takes root in Theon when he returns to Winterfell in A Dance with Dragons. Following the introduction of Reek early in Dance, we set up for his return to Winterfell and participation in the marriage of Ramsay to fake Arya. We're given four chapters set in Winterfell with unique titles and we'll be discussing the possible significance of those titles, among other things. To start with, the chapter titles are The Prince of Winterfell, The Turncloak, A Ghost in Winterfell, and Theon. And in broad strokes, they illustrate the progression of Reek back to Theon, continuing on with the strong theme of identity we've noted throughout our analysis. But we also think there might be alternate or hidden meanings behind some of these chapter titles, as we'll discuss. George has said that there's a definite reason for using those descriptives rather than names. On the one hand, he agrees it's a nod to how characters are thinking of themselves, but there is a hint of mystery that there's more to it than that. Certainly, when a character is promoted back to using their proper name, George has been clear that, quote, there's a method behind my madness, and I'll leave it to you guys to figure out. So in the progression we're dealing with here, we expect to be able to interpret that method. And we've already mentioned that we see it as a path tracing Theon's theme of identity crisis to a point of redemption. So getting back to the Prince of Winterfell, let's seek out the evidence. And we also want to mention that we'll be discussing the political situation in the North in our next episode, so we're only going to touch on that briefly here, with our main focus being Theon's arc and the theme of identity that so strongly defines it. The Prince of Winterfell deals with Theon's return to Winterfell and Ramsay's marriage to Jane Poole, a.k.a. Arya Stark. As Theon contemplates the wreckage of Winterfell, of the North and of his own life, he thinks, I made myself the Prince of Winterfell, and from that came all of this. Yes, but there just might be another Prince of Winterfell in this chapter. The phrase Prince of Winterfell occurs 13 times in the books. 11 times it's in reference to Theon, but on two occasions after his flight from Theon, Bran Stark thinks of himself as the Prince of Winterfell. And in this chapter, we get a very curious scene in the Godswood that just might indicate Bran's presence. And it occurs just after Ramsay is wed to Jane, itself a scene full of stark symbolism and painted by Theon's regret and wistful memories. Here's the passage. Theon found himself wondering if he should say a prayer. Will the old gods hear me if I do? They were not his gods, had never been his gods. He was Ironborn, a son of Pike. His god was the drowned god of the islands, but Winterfell was long leagues from the sea. He had been a lifetime since any god had heard him. He did not know who he was, or what he was, why he was still alive, why he had ever been born. Theon, a voice seemed to whisper. His head snapped up. Who said that? All he could see were the trees and the fog that covered them. The voice had been as faint as rustling leaves, as cold as hate. A god's voice, or a ghost's. How many died the day that he took Winterfell? 
How many more the day he lost it? The day that Theon Greyjoy died to be reborn as Reek. So, mixed in with his pain and the identity crisis that's clearly spelled out there is a whispered voice saying Theon's name. Going back to Bran's final point of view chapter, which occurs before this one, we have Jojen Reed explaining to Bran, Maesters will tell you that the Weirwoods are sacred to the old gods. The singers believe they are the old gods. And not long after, when Bran has a vision of his father kneeling before the Winterfell heart tree and tries to speak to him, Blood Raven tells him that he cannot, that Eddard only, quote, heard a whisper on the wind, a rustling amongst the leaves. Yes, so Theon hearing a god's voice and rustling leaves seems to be a strong hint that Bran may have been watching him from his weirwood throne north of the wall. Which would place our two candidates for Prince of Winterfell in the same scene? It's worth noting that here Theon is thinking about gods and his ironborn identity. He recalls that Theon Greyjoy died on the day Ramsay burned Winterfell, but we recall that Theon was baptised to the drowned god by his uncle Aaron. And of course the motto of the Ironborn and their god is What is dead may never die, but rises again harder and stronger. Right, so we think we're supposed to wonder there about the rebirth of Theon Greyjoy. But although he's called Theon in this chapter, it's made clear in the eyes of the Boltons he's still Reek. Even Theon himself knows it. Here's a passage. They're using me to cloak their deception, putting mine own face on their lie. That was why Roose Bolton had clothed him as a lord again, to play his part in this mummer's farce. Once that was done, once their false aria had been wedded and bedded, Bolton would have no more use for Theon Turncloak. Serve us in this, and when Stannis is defeated, we will discuss how best to restore you to your father's seat. Theon had never believed a word of it. He would dance this dance for them because he had no choice, but afterward, he'll give me back to Ramsay, and Ramsay will take a few more fingers and turn me into Reek once more. And immediately after the wedding, Theon's status as Theon Turncloak is underlined in several passages. As he enters the Great Hall for the wedding feast, we get this. Theon Turncloak, someone said as he passed. Other men turned away at the sight of him. One spat. And why not? He was a traitor who had taken Winterfell by treachery, slain his foster brothers, delivered his own people to be flayed at Moat Kaelin, and given his foster sister to Lord Ramsay's bed. Roose Bolton might make use of him, but true Northmen must despise him. Yeah, the truth of his situation couldn't be more clear. Roose's intentions for Theon were telegraphed clearly to Rob and Catelyn in A Storm of Swords, as we mentioned earlier. Theon's smart enough to know that Roose has no intention of restoring him to the Iron Islands, and that no Northman would ever accept that. Thus, his despair, and the pathos when he thinks cynically during the wedding ceremony that now he's a Stark at last. Which leads to another passage that underlines his status as Turncloak, and also proves in the saddest of ways the fear that Theon grew up with, and the fact that he never really knew Ned Stark very well at all. 
Here's the passage. He had thought that men would sing of him for a hundred years and tell tales of his daring, but if anyone spoke of him now, it was as Theon Turncloak, and the tales they told were of his treachery. This was never my home. I was a hostage here. Lord Stark had not treated him cruelly, but the long steel shadow of his greatsword had always been between them. He was kind to me, but never warm. He knew that one day he might need to put me to death. So imagine the terror of a young boy living in this fear that his guardian might put him to death at any moment should his angry and rebellious father put a toe out of line. And the unfortunate twist is that we readers are aware that Ned Stark would probably go to any lengths to safeguard the life of a child, even quarrelling with his best friend and king over the life of young Daenerys Targaryen and her unborn child. The takeaway from our studies of Ned is that it would have been somewhat out of character for him to take Theon's life, we think, provided he had done nothing wrong himself. Well, we can never know for sure, but it would be a sad twist in the psychological analysis of Theon Greyjoy if that were the case. It will sum up here by noting that much of the latter part of this chapter sets up the theme for Theon's next chapter, which is titled The Turncloak, while emphasizing, via the revolting bedding scene, that, to Ramsay anyway, Theon remains reek. And The Turncloak opens with snow, and Roos declaring that with the current storm, the gods of the north have unleashed their wrath on Lord Stannis. He is a stranger here, and the old gods will not suffer him to live. Only Theon and the Freys, themselves all outliers in the north, do not join in the cheering for that sentiment. And we see that while Theon has been given back his name, it continues to be more curse than blessing in public, and he continues to be reek in private to Ramsay and also in his own thoughts. He thinks that his reign as Prince of Winterfell had been a brief one. He had played his part in the Mummer's show, giving the faint Arya to be wed, and now he was of no further use to Roos Bolton. Yeah, it seems that the role of Theon now is that of a lowly retainer, shunned by all for the traitorous acts that have been laid at his door. He contemplates escape, but knows it's a useless dream. Even if he could escape Ramsay, where would he go? With the Iron Islands in the hands of his uncle Euron, he realizes the nearest thing to a home that remained to him was here, amongst the bones of Winterfell. A ruined man, a ruined castle. This is my place. And Theon entertained suicidal thoughts in the previous chapter, where he briefly considered revealing Jane Poole's identity at her wedding, and then contemplated killing her at her wedding feast, both actions that would lead not only to Jane's death, but his own, quote, if the old gods hear my prayer. Here are his thoughts on his own death. Theon was not afraid to die, Underneath the dreadful, he had learned that there were far worse things than death. Ramsay had taught him that lesson, finger by finger and toe by toe, and it was not one that he was ever like to forget. But now, in the turncloak, we see a greater emphasis on Reek. 
Theon has been teased with living as his previous self, but is trying hard to remember who Ramsay has made him. His fears that he might forget are still overwhelming, and when Jane begs for his help again, as she did on her wedding day, he tells her, In here I'm Reek. You have to remember, Arya. And he goes on to think, She should not look to me for rescue. Theon Greyjoy might have tried to help her once, but Theon had been ironborn and a braver man than Reek. Reek, Reek, it rhymes with weak. So, while Theon's thoughts are consumed with Ramsay being Reek and the hopelessness of his situation, with no escape seeming possible, even by death, there's the passage we used for the reading we began with. Once again, Theon is in the Winterfell Godswood, and he kneels before the heart tree and asks for forgiveness. Please, he murmured through his broken teeth, I never meant... The words caught in his throat. Save me, he finally managed. Give me... What? Strength? Courage? Mercy? So mercy is a theme that was very important to Theon's story when he seized Winterfell in A Clash of Kings, from Lewin begging for mercy for Bran and Rickon, to Theon's tortured dreams where he begs for mercy from his victims. It's also a theme we see strongly in both Arya's and Sansa's arcs, and Ned Stark once told Catelyn, the North is hard and cold and has no mercy. To be sure, He was referring to the mercy of her southern gods, since the old gods do offer their own grim version of the thing, and it is that aspect of mercy that we see the real Arya practicing in Braavos. We wonder about the significance of Theon asking the heart tree for mercy. Will he ultimately receive the mercy of the old gods, that is, a swift and certain death delivered to a guilty man? Will he be denied, as the cold, hard gods of the North are not his own, as he notes many times? Does this prayer foreshadow a reunion with the real Arya, who in the opening pages of The Winds of Winter goes by the name Mercy? Only time will tell, but we do think there's some significance to that scene. Yeah, and one other thing to note is, in that scene, we get the first of two times the line, There are ghosts in Winterfell, and I am one of them, is repeated by Theon. This sets up his next chapter in A Dance with Dragons, which is entitled A Ghost in Winterfell, and deals with a series of curious deaths the unravelling of Bolton's alliances and Theon's own obsession with death. But before we get to that, at the end of The Turn Cloak, Theon makes a mysterious journey underground to the Winterfell crypts with Lady Barbary Dustin. Yeah, Lady Barbary wants to see the crypts, and we'll get back to this scene again when we explore the political situation in the North in our next episode. But when she enlists Theon to show her the way, she exposes herself to a bold question from her guide that's as revealing of his motivations as it is of her own. Here's the passage. Theon heard himself say, My lady, why do you hate the Starks? She studied him. For the same reason you love them. Theon stumbled. Love them? I never... I took this castle from them, my lady. I had... Had Bran and Rickon put to death, mounted their heads on spikes, I... 
you rode south with Rob Stark, fought beside him at the Whispering Wood and River Run, returned to the Iron Islands as his envoy to treat with your own father. I know who you are. I know what you are. Now answer my question. Why do you love the Starks? I, I wanted to be one of them, and never could. We have more in common than you know, my lord. So Theon's inner torment is really laid bare there which makes his observation of one of the ancient kings in the north more poignant. As he recalls the names of the kings, once taught to him by Maester Lewin, he sees Theon Stark and thinks, The Hungry Wolf, my namesake. Theon wanted to be a Stark so badly, he risked and lost everything, and there in the crypts, of their great castle, in front of their dead, he finally admits it. So we mentioned that Theon had suicidal thoughts in The Prince of Winterfell. In A Ghost in Winterfell, his thoughts return to death, but not only his own, and he takes some inspiration from a series of deaths among the castle inmates that begin to set the situation inside Winterfell on edge, leading inevitably to the climax of the next chapter. And we'll take some time to look at one of the big mysteries of this chapter, as well as an alternate interpretation of the chapter title, in a few moments. But for now, let's continue tracking Theon's state of mind. Okay, as the chapter begins, Theon's mind is becoming preoccupied with ghosts due to those mysterious deaths that we mentioned. Not only are men dying mysteriously, but there's friction and a great sense of unease in the castle and the deaths ring a familiar bell with Theon. It all seemed so familiar, like a mama show that he had seen before. Only the mummers had changed. Roose Bolton was now playing the part that Theon had played the last time round, and the dead men were playing the parts of Agar, Gynia Rednose, and Gelmar the Grim. Reek was there too, he remembered, but he was a different reek, a reek with bloody hands and lies dripping from his lips, sweet as honey. So a chance remark about Stannis by a young freerider leads to the man being tossed off the 80-foot high walls into the snowdrifts below by Ramsay's boys. Remarkably, the man survived the fall and was last seen struggling away through the drifts with a broken leg. Not long after, Theon makes his way to the wall walk and, foreshadowing his own actions in the next chapter, looks down and thinks, I could jump. He lived. Why shouldn't I? He could jump and... And what? Break a leg and die beneath the snow? Creep away to freeze to death? And while his conclusion is that this was madness, for Ramsay would surely bring him back, and he thinks... I have to remember my name. We've noticed that this is one of only two times in this chapter that Theon thinks of Reek. The second comes when Theon summoned to an audience with Roose Bolton to be questioned about his wanderings of the castle in relation to the mysterious deaths. His physical condition, the fact that his left hand had three fingers, his right four... And, as Lady Dustin notes, he hardly has the strength to hold a spoon, leads Roos to rule him out as a suspect. 
As the gathered lords argue over what man could be responsible, Theon thinks, Reek is no man, not Reek, not me. And that marks the last time Theon thinks of himself as Reek. The title of his next chapter is Theon, and in that chapter, when he thinks briefly of Reek, it is as of another person, crucially, not as himself. And the final transformation is, we believe, inspired by Theon's third visit to the Winterfell Godswood in as many chapters. In the face of rumors that Stannis is nearly upon them and that the Bolton forces will ride out to meet him, Theon is resigned to death. Yeah, he's aware that Stannis has made common cause with Jon Snow and knows his death is all but guaranteed if Stannis comes. But as we know, he doesn't fear death. In fact, he thinks death was the sweetest deliverance that he could hope for. He is hoping that Bolton's armies will ride out into the snow and die, leave Winterfell to me and the ghosts, when he goes to the Godswood once more. And the remarkable scene there not only supports our earlier speculation that Bran is watching Theon through the heart tree, and illustrates Theon's progression and desire to become his true self again, but also gives weight to his conviction that there are ghosts in Winterfell. Here's the passage. In the heart of the wood, the weirwood waited with its knowing red eyes. Theon stopped by the edge of the pool and bowed his head before its carved red face. The night was windless, the snow drifting straight down out of a cold black sky, yet the leaves of the heart tree were rustling his name. Theon, they seemed to whisper. Theon. The old gods, he thought, they know me, they know my name. I was Theon of House Greyjoy, I was a ward of Eddard Stark, a friend and brother to his children. Please, he fell to his knees, a sword, that's all I ask, let me die as Theon, not as Reek. A leaf drifted down from above, brushed his brow, and landed in the pool. It floated on the water, red, five-fingered, like a bloody hand. Bran, the tree murmured. They know. The gods know. They saw what I did. And for one strange moment, it seemed as if it were Bran's face carved into the pale trunk of the weirwood, staring down at him with eyes red and wise and sad. Bran's ghost, he thought. But that was madness. Why should Bran want to haunt him? So into this scene arrive three of Abel's washerwomen, They tell Theon that Abel wants to speak with him and lead him off. Only in the next chapter do we learn that there's a plot afoot to rescue Arya. Abel, who is really Mance, is going to make good on his promise to Jon Snow by making use of Theon's access to the Weeping Bride. But before the plot can be put into motion, little Walder Frey's corpse is carried into the Great Hall and the ensuing melee between Mandalese and Frey's leads Roos to command a march to bring the battle to Stannis. Well, it seems that Roos has just received word that Stannis is three days' march away and the boiling tensions in Winterfell have become too dangerous, and so the army is ordered forth. Abel decides the rescue must be now, and Theon is led off for a fourth and final visit to the godswood in the company of Rowan. 
Rowan makes her disgust for Theon Plain, calling him Kinslayer and Turncloak, and turns her back on him. Briefly, Theon considers stabbing her. Reek might have done it, would have done it, in hopes it might please Lord Ramsay. These whores meant to steal Ramsay's bride. Reek could not allow that. But the old gods had known him, had called him Theon. Ironborn, I was Ironborn, Balon Greyjoy's son and the rightful heir to Pike. And as if he knows this is his last chance at redemption, Theon stays his hand and goes along with the plot, leading the wildling women into the heart of the Great Keep to Ramsay's chamber. As he climbs the stairs, Theon is overcome by memories of his childhood with the Starks, and of all those who are now dead, many by his own hand. His thoughts of Rob are one of the most poignant and often quoted lines in his arc. And Rob, Rob, who had been more a brother to Theon than any son born of Balon Greyjoy's loins, murdered at the Red Wedding, butchered by the phrase, I should have been with him. Where was I? I should have died with him. Well, it seems Theon has become himself again, and his cringing fearfulness has been replaced by a sense of fatalism that echoes in his thoughts even as he tries to gently persuade Jane that they mean her no harm. In a complete turnaround from every other interaction he's had with her, where her pleas for help have been met with the reply that he's reek, not Theon, and they must do as Ramsay says. Here he tells her, You know me. I'm Theon. So at first escape seems to go quite smoothly. Jane is smuggled past the guards, and they're making their way to the wall with a rope, when things start to go wrong. Holly and Frenya kill a pair of guardsmen, and Jane lets out a scream in shock. What follows is a mad dash for the wall, whilst Frenya and then Holly are killed by the alerted guard. Theon finds himself alone atop the wall with Jane, with no rope and the guard closing in. He thinks, if they take us alive, they will deliver us to Ramsay. And then it says, Theon grabbed Jane about the waist and jumped. So, a jump from an 80-foot wall into the snowdrifts below, and that's the last we hear from Theon's point of view in A Dance with Dragons. And there's no doubt that Theon has regained his former identity by this point, becoming the hero he always wanted to be. If you look back at his arc, as far back as his rescue of Bran from the Night's Watch deserters and Osha in the Wolf's Wood, to his near encounter with Jamie Lannister at Whispering Wood, and even his mission to his father on Rob's behalf, it's clear that all Theon ever wanted, besides belonging to the Stark family, was to be a hero. Yeah, and it's clear from his point of view in the spoiler chapter from The Wind of Winter that we will be discussing shortly that he thinks he has finally accomplished that, though not even Theon thinks he has, or ever can, atone for all of his wrongs. Before we get to that, though, we're going to backtrack a moment to look at that mystery from A Ghost in Winterfell, as we consider who is the hooded man. But first it's time for an advert from Westeros, And this one was submitted to us by a listener. 
Maester David, aka at Grumpy Gobear on Twitter. So many thanks to him for this. And this is an advert for the Bolton School of Torture. Have you considered your future lately? Are you too immoral to be a knight and too cruel to be a maester? And fear not, immoral cruelty is just one of the requirements at the Bolton School of Torture. With the realm falling into chaos and no end in sight, experienced torturers are in high demand. Once you begin your training, you'll be a professional in no time. Learn the valuable art of skin flaying while practicing on our endless supply of low-born commoners and prisoners of war. Don't worry about expensive textbooks or outrageous tuition costs. At the Bolton School of Torture, we supply everything you need from racks to flaying knives. All you need to bring is a strong stomach and no sense of decency at all. Sign up for the Bolton School of Torture at the infamous Dreadfort or our new campus on the newly renovated Winterfell. Come and flay some limbs with House Bolton, because our blades are sharp. So, now we're going to take some time to analyze one of the great minor mysteries of the A Song of Ice and Fire fandom. In the chapter A Ghost in Winterfell, as we mentioned earlier, we see a series of deaths. A Riswell man-at-arms, Annie's Frey's old squire, and a flint crossbowman. Theon doesn't believe any of the excuses made for these deaths, thinking to himself each time that foul play was a more likely answer. And when Ramsay's own man, Yellow Dick, is found dead with his actual dick cut off and stuffed into his mouth, there can be no doubt that a bad actor is responsible for these deaths. Things are starting to go badly wrong for Roos Bolton, the snow is making the men anxious, the Fraser Mandalays are fighting, and the stables have collapsed. It's during this chaos and friction that Theon flees a meal in the Great Hall and has a rather curious encounter. Yes, he does. When Theon steps outside, he has a moment of peace in the falling snow that's strangely evocative of Sansa's snow castle scene from the Eyrie. Then he walks on and meets a man. Here's the passage. Farther on, he came upon a man striding in the opposite direction, a hooded cloak flapping behind him. When they found themselves face to face, their eyes met briefly. The man put a hand on his dagger. Theon Turncloak. Theon Kinslayer. I'm not... I'd never... I was ironborn. False is all you were. How is it you still breathe? The gods are not done with me, Theon answered, wondering if this could be the killer, the nightwalker who had stuffed Yellow Dick's cock into his mouth and pushed Roger Riswell's groom off the battlements. Oddly, he was not afraid. He pulled the glove from his left hand. Lord Ramsay is not done with me. The man looked and laughed. I leave you to him, then. So that short passage has inspired the eternal question, who is the hooded man? We're going to look at the options and offer our call on who we think the hooded man is. Many identity theories have been floated about the fandom, from Benjamin Stark to Hal Mullen to Brynden Blackfish Tully. And while we think there's some value in ideas like Robert Glover, the brother of the Lord of Deepwood Mott, who was last seen trying to raise troops in White Harbour, and an idea which proposes the Hooded Man is simply in Theon's imagination, 
Our call is someone much closer to home, someone who would have very good reason to be in Winterfell, who may be much changed from the last time Theon saw him, and who Theon actually thinks is dead, making him a perfect candidate for an alternate interpretation of the chapter title, A Ghost in Winterfell. Yes, we propose that Harwin, son of Holland, is both the alternate A Ghost in Winterfell and the hooded man Theon encounters. And we're going to go through the evidence now. Probably the first question to address is, why Harwin? That answer lies with Lady Stoneheart. Starting in A Storm of Swords, in the Merit Frey epilogue, it's made clear that she and the Brotherhood Without Banners are searching for her daughter Arya in the Riverlands. Remember, the BWB are the last people to knowingly see Arya Stark alive, besides Sander Clegane. The search continues into A Feast for Crows when the Brotherhood questioned Brienne about Arya, and we also learn that they've been gathering orphans in the Riverlands and housing them at the Inn in the Crossroads. And it's been speculated that this is most likely part of an effort to discover Arya among the orphaned and displaced young people of the Riverlands. So Lady Stoneheart and the BWB would know that Arya was last seen with Sandor Clegane prior to the Red Wedding. But they will also have heard the news that some weeks after the Red Wedding, Roos Bolton set out for the north with a young woman in a closed carriage, reputed to be Arya Stark, being taken home to marry his son, Ramsay. So it makes perfect sense that Lady Stoneheart would send a spy to Winterfell to see if this was truly her daughter, and if so, to perhaps effect her rescue. Who better to send than the one member of the BWB who not only knew Arya well, but grew up in Winterfell and was an expert horseman? Yeah, we think Harwin makes perfect sense for that mission, and we're pretty sure he has the opportunity to have made the trip. Harwin is actually last mentioned by name in A Feast for Crows when Thoros tells Brienne that Harwin begged him to raise Catelyn Stark when they discovered her in the river three days after her death. And while there's a young Northman in the cave when Brienne is brought before Lady Stoneheart, as we said in our Brotherhood Without Banners episode, we think there's a very good chance that young man is Hal Malin, Catelyn's sworn sword, who was last seen heading into the neck with Ned's bones in A Clash of Kings. Yeah, it's important to note that the young man in that scene, whose voice is frosted with the accents of the North, is never actually identified by name. And there's certainly an opportunity for Hal to have rejoined his lady's service, since Lady Stoneheart is noted to have been in Hagsmire and the Neck recently. So we give pretty fair odds to this man being Hal Mollen and to Harwin having been sent on his way north sometime earlier, possibly during that trip into the Neck. But the theory doesn't really hinge upon that being true, since by most reckonings, nearly two months pass between Brienne's trial and the hooded man's sighting. We think that's more than enough time for an expert horseman who knows the lay of the land well to make his way to Winterfell. So, we've established motive and opportunity for Harwin. Now let's look at the scene itself. It's not immediately clear if Theon recognizes the man. He wonders if this is the killer who has claimed four victims to that point, and thinks of him only as the man. 
but it's very obvious the hooded man knows him. Right, he clearly recognises Theon and calls him Turncloak and Kinslayer, epithets that one could certainly expect from someone who lived in the Winterfell household. Theon denies being a Kinslayer as usual, since he knows he didn't kill Bran and Rickon. And as usual, this is met with disgust, and the hooded man says, false is all you were, and wonders, how is it you still breathe? Now, we know that Theon's torture by Ramsay was widely known, even in the Riverlands. Roose had made no secret of it. The man doesn't seem surprised, and even laughs when he sees Theon's maimed hand, and seems to take some pleasure in leaving Theon to Ramsay. So, we see these reactions as all in keeping with what one would expect from Harwin. But what about Theon? It's possible he doesn't recognize Harwin, whom he hasn't seen in several years. Remember, Harwin was much changed, and Arya barely recognized him when she first met the Brotherhood Without Banners. But it's also possible that he does recognize him. And that, to us, is the really intriguing possibility, because while Theon hasn't seen Harwin in years, he has thought of him recently. Yeah, he has. In his dream of the dead in Clash, he sees this. Even down on the benches, there were new men at the tables. Jury was dead, and Fat Tom and Portha, Alan, Desmond, Hullen, who had been master of horse, Harwin, his son, all those who had gone south. And then in Dance, in the chapter following his encounter with the Hooded Man, Theon is thinking about the ghosts that inhabit Winterfell, and we get this. That was long ago, though. They were all dead now. Jory, old Sir Roderick, Lord Eddard, Harwin and Hullen, Cain and Desmond and Fat Tom, Alan with his dreams of knighthood, Micken who had given him his first real sword, even old Nan like as not. So obviously Theon assumes that all of the men who went south with Ned perished in King's Landing, but Harwin is the only person in his thoughts that we know for sure actually is alive, and we think we're alerted to this mistake on Theon's part for a reason. Consider that while the chapter title, A Ghost in Winterfell, clearly applies to Theon, it's made very plain in his thoughts that he thinks of himself as only one of very many ghosts. There are ghosts in Winterfell, and I am one of them. Now, if we consider that these chapter titles sometimes do have alternate meanings, and imagine what Theon would think if he saw Harwin, who he clearly thinks is dead, the alternate meaning for this chapter title becomes very clear. Yeah, the hooded man would literally appear to be a ghost to Theon, who's already spending a lot of time musing about ghosts, and wondering about the voice he's hearing from the Weirwood Tree. In that light, some lines that come immediately after the encounter with the Hooded Man make a lot of sense. First he thinks, he was trapped here with the ghosts. And then, leave Winterfell to me and the ghosts. And finally, when surprised in the godswood by Abel's women, the ghosts, he blurted, they whisper to me, they, they know my name. So, the tree has been speaking to him, but that's a singular. We think he has another ghost in mind as well. 
Imagine Theon, already haunted by the ghosts he created, hearing a voice speaking to him from the weirwood tree, then seeing someone he's thought dead for these last two years. Might be a good cause for him to think more ghosts are talking to him. And then in the Winds of Winter spoiler chapter, when Theon's recalling how he tried to explain his story to Asha, he thinks, He told her how he bedded down with Ramsay's bitches, warned her that Winterfell was full of ghosts. Hmm, so he warned his sister that Winterfell was full of ghosts. Very interesting in light of this theory that Theon had an encounter with a man he would consider a ghost. And finally, we just want to clarify a couple of points. One good question is, why rule out the other candidates, like Robert Glover, Hal Mullen, the Blackfish and Benjamin Stark? And the obvious answer is that not only would Theon have recognised all of these men, having seen most of them recently during the fighting in the War of the Five Kings, but that he has never been shown to think any of them are dead, as he has Harwin. And so his reaction to seeing them might have been much different. And one other thing about Harwin as an option that we think is important is that neither Roos nor any of the lords or soldiers who are with him would be expected to recognise him as they would Glover, Tully or Benjamin Stark. And even Hal Mullen, who was Rob's standard bearer when the Northmen left Winterfell in game. Harwin could thus easily blend in with the grooms, servants and free riders that Winterfell is teeming with. Well, consider Theon's reaction, wondering if this could be the killer, the night walker who had stuffed Yellow Dick's cock into his mouth and pushed Roger Riswell's groom off the battlements. There's an almost supernatural feeling to this, and the fact that he feels no fear is appropriate given the fact that he seems so comfortable with his ghosts. And speaking of Theon's suspicion that the hooded man could be the killer, we think it very unlikely. Yeah, after Theon's various interactions with Abel's women, it seems pretty clear that they were responsible for the Riswell man-at-arms, Sir Aenys Frey Squire, the Flint Crossbowman, and Yellow Dick. Since there isn't anything we know of in the political situation at Winterfell to connect those four men, we surmise that they had some knowledge that made them dangerous. Since all were found outside, we further assume it was something they saw that marks them for death. Right, but what about little Walder? Rowan denies that his death was down to Abel's washerwomen, implying that they are responsible for the others. But while we can't rule them out, because little Walder's body was discovered in the vicinity of the tower Abel met Theon in the night of the murder, we definitely think there could be a second murderer in Winterfell who killed little Walder. We think it's highly suspicious that Big Walder is noted to be spattered in blood when it's just been stated that Little Walder's blood is frozen due to the body being found in a snowdrift. So while we can't rule out one of Abel's women or the hooded man as the killer, and it might make a small amount of sense for Harwin as a member of the Brotherhood Without Banners to kill a fray, we think that Big Walder, who was so quick to implicate a knight from White Harbor, is definitely a strong suspect. So that's our call on the Hooded Man and the mysterious deaths that take place in Winterfell as tensions rise to the boiling point and Roos commands a snowy march to meet Stannis Baratheon in battle. 
And we'll be looking at what we know about what's happening in Stannis' camp from Ash's final dance POV, as well as Theon's sample POV chapter from The Winds of Winter in our next segment. We'll also bring Theon's story to a close and make some predictions on what we think George might have in store for him in Winds. But first, here's this ad from the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire podcast. Hi, we're the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire podcast. We're about thematic analysis and discussion of A Song of Ice and Fire. We do literary analysis, character analysis, that kind of thing. We also discuss and analyze various historical comparisons through A Song of Ice and Fire. And we slay a lot of hype too. We talk about things like how Rhaegar was a tragically misguided would-be savior, as well as a narcissist and betrayer of chivalry. As well as what everyone's favorite secret Stark is up to in The Winds of Winter. And why we should all care about the murdered and missing characters for A Song of Ice and Fire. And how George R. Barton will likely conduct character evolution in The Winds of Winter. So, after you're done listening to this episode of Radio Westeros, come on over to warsofasoiaf.podbean.com or iTunes and check us out. So, that was the crew from Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog and podcast. Thanks to them for doing that advert for us. And if you haven't checked their podcast out, we highly recommend it. So, now we'll look at where George left Theon at the end of A Dance with Dragons, as well as what we know from the Theon sample chapter from The Winds of Winter. So, obviously, The Winds of Winter spoilers going forward. Okay, so our final and very brief glimpse of Theon in Dance with Dragons is when he's delivered to his sister, Asha, who's a captive in Stannis Baratheon's encampment at the Crofter's Village, three days' march from Winterfell. From out of a raging storm rides Tycho Nestoris, the banker from the Iron Bank of Bravos, accompanied by Asha's ironborn comrades that he's ransomed from Sybil Glover to act as his escort. But he has two other souls with him, whom he presents to Asha as a gift. Here's the passage. The Bravosi smiled. We've brought a gift for you. A girl and an old man, thought Asha, as the two were dumped rudely in the snow before her. The girl was shivering violently, even in her furs. If she had not been so frightened, she might have even been pretty, though the tip of her nose was black with frostbite. The old man, no one would ever think him comely. She had seen scarecrows with more flesh. His face was a skull with skin, his hair bone-white and filthy, and he stank. Just the sight of him filled Asha with revulsion. He raised his eyes. Sister, see, this time I knew you. Asha's heart skipped a beat. Theon? His lips skinned back in what might have been a grin. Half his teeth were gone, and half of those still left him were broken and splintered. Theon, he repeated. My name is Theon. You have to know your name. So, a grim description of Theon there, and really he's unrecognisable. As we mentioned earlier, this is an inversion of their first meeting in Clash, where Theon didn't recognise Asher. At the same time, it highlights a theme of identity that has been so central to Theon's arc, while emphasising his transition from Reek back to Theon. It seems that Theon, in his redemptive act of heroism on behalf of Jane Poole, has gone some way to reclaiming his identity. As we mentioned in the last segment, Theon always wanted to be a hero. Choosing the heroic path really enabled him to cast off Reek, though we don't doubt Reek's shadow still remains, 
And the identity he's reclaimed has been broken and transformed in sick and unimaginable ways. Hmm, well, as Theon explains his escape to Stannis in the Winds of Winter sample chapter, there's no doubt that he considers himself a hero for the rescue of Jane. Here it is. I saved her. The outer wall of Winterfell was 80 feet high, but beneath the spot where he had jumped, the snows had piled up to a depth of more than 40. A cold white pillow. The girl had taken the worst of it. Jane. Her name is Jane, but she will never tell them. Theon had landed on top of her and broken some of her ribs. I saved the girl, he said. We flew. Stannis doesn't buy it, of course, seeing Theon's crimes as beyond redemption. And we get a little hint at what Stannis might be thinking when Theon offers to serve him. Unchain me and I will serve you. As you served Roose Bolton and Rob Stark, Stannis snorted, I think not. We have a warmer end in mind for you, Turncloak, but not until we're done with you. So the Dance with Dragons chapter where Theon arrives at the Crofters village is Asha's point of view and is titled The Sacrifice. It deals with the situation of Stannis' army as they sit trapped by a seemingly unending snowstorm, their food stores rapidly vanishing, their horses dying, and their men becoming increasingly restless. Not long before Theon's appearance at the end of the chapter, Asha witnessed the burning of four men accused of cannibalism as sacrifices to R'hllor in an attempt to win his aid against the deadly snowstorm. Asha finds her own life under threat by the Queen's men, notably Sir Clayton Suggs, who threatens, She'll be for the fire, her and her king's blood. There's power in king's blood, the Red Woman used to say, power to please our lord. And because of the theme of sacrifice in the chapter and the naked threats against Asha, many readers assume that the title of the chapter refers to her, or perhaps even to her fate. But keeping in mind the secondary meanings to chapter titles we explored in Theon's chapters, we think that a potential secondary meaning could be an allusion to the person who appears out of the storm as the chapter draws to a close, the long-lost Theon Greyjoy. Yeah, Stannis even mentions a warmer end for Theon, but it seems that he has a use for him first. When Sir Richard Horp asks Stannis if he'll give Theon up to the Northmen who want him dead, the Walls, Flints, and Norries first among them, Stannis replies, Just now, the Turncloak is more used to me alive. He has knowledge we may need. Right, Theon's knowledge is highly valued here. And Stannis tries to extract some intelligence from his captive later in the sample chapter. How many men does Bolton have at Winterfell? And how many of those is he like to send against us? And Theon's reply that Roose will send the Freys and the Mandalees against Stannis is followed up by this warning. The North remembers the Red Wedding, Lady Hornwood's Fingers, the Sack of Winterfell, Deepwood Mott and Torrin Square. They remember all of it. Frey and Manderley will never combine their strengths. They will come for you, but separately. Lord Ramsay will not be far behind them. He wants his bride back. He wants his reek. Theon's laugh was half a titter, half a whimper. Lord Ramsay is the one your grace should fear. So, a salient warning about Ramsay Bolton there, and we wonder if that will be significant later in the Winds of Winter. But Stannis isn't the only one who may have plans for Theon. 
Remember that his family recently participated in a king's moot on the Iron Islands that saw his sister and uncles vying for control of the region. The issue was settled when his uncle Euron Crozai caused the Hellhorn, or Dragonbinder, to be blown and promised to use its power to bind Daenerys' dragons to his cause and conquer all of Westeros. And we know from A Dance with Dragons and the spoiler chapters from The Winds of Winter that Euron has sent his brother Victarion to Marine to set his plan in motion. But in Dance, Asha has a very interesting conversation with Triss Botley about something from the Iron Islands history in the Age of Heroes. A king's moot, in fact, which seems to set some precedent that with Theon's survival and re-emergence could be highly significant. Here's the passage. Torgon Greyiron was the king's eldest son. But the king was old and Torgon restless, so it happened that when his father died, he was raiding along the Mander from his stronghold on Greyshield. His brothers sent no word to him, but instead quickly called the king's moot, thinking that one of them would be chosen to wear the driftwood crown. But the captains and the kings chose Urgon Goodbrother to rule instead. The first thing the new king did was command that all the sons of the old king be put to death, and so they were. After that, men called him Bad Brother, though in truth they'd been no kin of his. He ruled for almost two years. Asha remembered now. Torgon came home. And said the king's moot was unlawful, since he had not been there to make his claim. Bad Brother had proved to be as mean as he was cruel and had few friends left upon the isles. The priests denounced him, the lords rose against him, and his own captains hacked him into pieces. Torgon the latecomer became the king and ruled for 40 years. So it's clear from that conversation that Asha has Theon in mind when she's reminded of that bit of history. And many fans have speculated that Theon could become Theon the Latecomer and return to the Iron Islands to challenge his uncle's right to the sea stone chair. We think it's highly likely, if they both survive the upcoming battles that Asha will indeed try to lead her brother to this course of action, or something thereabouts. But there's also another king from Westeros history that Theon could be identified with. That's right, but this one's a Stark. Theon Stark, and in Theon's own thoughts, the hungry wolf, my namesake. Not only does Theon think of him this way, and their physical appearances are actually seem to be quite similar, but remember that the main thrust of Theon's arc has been his identification with the Stark family. And while it's true that he affirmed his Ironborn identity many times over during A Dance with Dragons, he also thinks how he's a Stark at last during Jane's sham wedding to Ramsay Bolton, and admits in the crypts just how much he's always wanted to be a Stark. Since, among other things, Theon Stark was responsible for driving the Ironborn from the north, we wonder if this story from history will also have some bearing on Theon Greyjoy's present. Yeah, or if it already has. Remember that Theon is responsible for the Northmen retaking Moat Caelan from Victarion's men. Theon Stark was also known for making common cause with the Boltons. And while that isn't exactly the case with Theon Greyjoy, it certainly could be the way the history books view it. And remember that the fate of the remaining Ironborn under Dagmar Clefjaw at Torrin Square has yet to be decided. Could Theon have a role to play there as well? 
In any case, the two possibilities of Torg on the Latecomer and Theon Stark parallels are not mutually exclusive, but we find both to be more examples of how people in his life would like to use Theon Greyjoy. So we wonder what fate he and the gods might have in mind for himself. Well, when we consider this, we go all the way back to something we discussed from A Storm of Swords. That is, Theon's seeming willingness, just before the sack of Winterfell by Ramsay Bolton, to join the Night's Watch. Remember this? A brother of the Night's Watch. It meant no crown, no sons, no wife, but it meant life, and life with honor. A black cloak can't be turned. I'd be as good as any man." And since that was one of his final thoughts as Theon Greyjoy, before he turned into Reek, it's also been made clear what the value of a good archer is to the Watch, we think this option's worth considering. Yeah, we do. It's made clear many times over that Theon Greyjoy is an excellent archer. From his rescue of Bran from the Night's Watch deserter to Jon's own memories here... He remembered something that Theon Greyjoy had once said after a hunt. The boar can keep his tusks and then bear his claws, he had declared, smiling that way he did. There's nothing half so mortal as a grey goose feather. Right, and we do think that Theon has at least one more arrow shot left in him. While Ramsay has separated him from a few fingers and toes, it's possible he's left him just enough to still be an effective archer. Did a little bit of research on real-life archery stance, draw, and grip, and keeping in mind that this is fantasy fiction, there seems to be every reason to believe that it's possible. And as we've said, it seems that besides being a Stark, Theon yearns for nothing more than to be a hero. Yeah, and for example, imagine the heroism of a well-placed dragonglass-tipped arrow, remembering those obsidian arrowheads John found in the cache at the Fist of the First Men. As Theon himself once thought, he had his bow, he needed nothing else. And we think that all of Theon's prayers in front of the Winterfell heart tree may have some significance besides allowing Bran to watch him. He's prayed to the old gods for mercy, and remembering that while the mercy of the North is that of swift judgment and a clean death, We also think that if any gods will make a fair and true judgment, it will be the gods of the trees. Well, we also have to remember Theon's conviction that the gods are not done with me and wonder what they do have in store for him. Perhaps a heroic ending, grounded in some kind of self-sacrifice that might redeem him in the eyes of gods and men. We can't be sure, of course, but we don't think that George will have built up this complex and tortured character with his dreadful journey through identity crisis and physical and emotional torment for him to meet an ignominious ending as a sacrifice to a foreign god who holds no sway in the land Theon has identified with. Yeah, and after all the build-up and drama, we do expect a very dramatic ending for Theon, and we both hope that there is some redemption tied to the end of his arc. And that's our look at Theon Greyjoy, one of the greyest and most complicated characters in the Song of Ice and Fire universe, who beyond a doubt embodies the theme of the human heart in conflict with itself. The heart tree knew my name, the old gods. Theon, I heard them whisper. 
There was no wind, but the leaves were moving. Theon, they said. My name is Theon. You have to know your name. Thanks so much for joining us, and we hope you've enjoyed our look at Theon today. Up next, we have a look at the political situation in the North with an episode called The North Remembers, so we hope you'll come back for that. Now, as usual, it's time to give credit where credit is due. So thanks to George R. R. Martin for Westeros and complex characters like Theon Greyjoy, to Nine Inch Nails and Kevin MacLeod for allowing us to use elements of their music, and to Beige Lunatics for You Have to Know Your Name. We'll link to them on our website. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also donate and comment on our content there, or connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time with The North Remembers. Bye for now. <laughs>